Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. In March 1797, newly inaugurated President John Adams thought he detected a glint of joy in George Washington's eyes as the aging Virginian stepped off the world stage. Adams told his wife Abigail it was as if Washington was thinking, I am fairly out and you are fairly in. See which of us will be happiest. The first president had grown tired of the partisan rancor that plagued his second term and longed to sit under his own vine and fig tree at Mount Vernon in peace. But Washington's vision of a tranquil retirement was not to be. In the last few years of his life, European turmoil threatened American domestic security, his own finances were in shambles, and the fate of the enslaved community at Mount Vernon, and indeed enslaved Americans in general, began to weigh heavily on Washington's mind. Many biographers treat Washington's post-presidency years as a kind of coda to his life, as a space that needs to be filled in order to get to the dramatic story of his death. But for Jonathan Horne, these final years are fertile ground for understanding the United States in its infancy, what it meant for a republic to have an ex-president, and Washington's own struggle to be one. On today's show, Horne joins me via Zoom to discuss his new book, Washington's End. Horn is a former White House presidential speechwriter who has written for numerous publications, including the Washington Post, the New York Times, Politico, and the Weekly Standard. As always, we'd like to thank everyone for tuning in each week. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a rating if you have a spare moment. We'd really appreciate it. And with that, let's end Washington's life with Jonathan Horn. You know, as I, as I, we were chatting earlier, I, I had noticed all the books on your shelf behind you. Many of them, of course, deal with Washington, and, the, and it looks like you've got uh, various you know, multi-volume biographies of Washington. And one of the things I was thinking about as I was reading your book, and you actually speak to this in your introduction, is that if you look at any given single-volume or multi-volume work of Washington's life, oftentimes the period you're dealing with, the last two years, of his life after he resigns the presidency and goes back home are uh, often a, a coda or kind of an afterthought uh, to these larger works. And, and, but here that is very much the focus of this book. And so what was it about you that drew you to this moment? And, and what do you think that other historians might have been missing by not really giving this moment its due diligence well, that, that's a great question. I think a couple personal factors drew me to this story. First of all, I had worked as a White House speechwriter at the end of a presidency. So I had seen what happens when a president leaves office, and that got me interested in the history of what happens when president, other presidents have left history, uh, office. Mm-hmm. And my earlier book had been a Robert E. Lee biography titled The Man Who Would Not Be Washington. And everybody made the same joke that your next book should be about the man who was George Washington. Uh, so those two factors led me to be interested in what happened to George Washington when he left the presidency. And it turned out, as I was looking at this, that the story had never really been told, I thought, in full. And I, I think there are some really understandable reasons for why that's the case. I mean, if you just think about how much ground the George Washington biographers have to cover tell the story, all the different things he did during his life, you run out of space, you're, you're getting you know, phone calls from your editor to turn in the manuscript. Mm-hmm. Um, but what was interesting to me is the story didn't end the way most people think the story ends. Most people think 
George Washington left the presidency. He returned to Mount Vernon. He lived out what little was left of his life as a farmer in peace. And he really, it was almost, it was the exact ending to the story that he wanted. But that's not actually what happened at all. Surrendering power was far more difficult than George Washington ever imagined. And it brought his life, the struggle to do it, brought his life to an end he never imagined. In fact, just a little bit less, more than a year after leaving the presidency, he found himself called back out of retirement and put back in command of the United States Army. So let's play with that a little bit, because I'm, I'm really fascinated by uh, this tension between you know, this, this, this idea that Washington retires to his vine and fig, as he liked to say, but... but as I said to you in our in my correspondence with you about today's podcast, that you know he really comes across as a as a restless soul, as someone who who feels like the work is unfinished, in many respects. And so, can you kind of give us um, a sense of Washington's mindset, you know, at the moment where he does step down from the presidency? What's he looking forward to, and, and what does he expect his life is going to look like um, for however long he has left? That's a great question. I think some context is probably needed. Mm-hmm. Um, he had wanted to leave the presidency after his first term as president, but he had been convinced, essentially, that the country would come apart unless he agreed to serve a second term, that only he, people said, could hold the country together. So he serves, agrees to serve a second term. And he really immediately regrets the decision. Um, and pretty much there's no argument in the world that could have convinced him to serve a third term but when his second term and um, he is being attacked by newspapers that are associated with a rising opposition party called the Republican Party. They are accusing him of craving a crown, of wanting to be a king. And I think he understands that his legacy depends on proving them wrong and showing that he really has been anxious to return to his farm all these years. And it's true, by the way. Mm-hmm. He really does want to return to his farm. He imagines himself living out his days, essentially rotting around his farms putting his mansion house back in order. He feels like it's gone into ruin. And he wants to organize his personal papers because he knows people like you and me are one day going to be very interested in looking at those papers. And he's aware of his place in history. Um, and that's how he imagines his retirement going. But it doesn't end up going like that at all. And I think there are some reasons why, because he is, um, you know, I, I think it's very difficult to let go of something that you had such an important role mm-hmm. in creating. He still very much cares about the outcome of this country. He wants to know what's happening back in Philadelphia after he rides away. He's still voraciously reading newspapers, and he's pushing John Adams' cabinet secretaries to send information about what's happening. And John Adams, of course, has retained George Washington's cabinet secretaries, which we can talk about because it was a mistake for John Adams. <laughs> Yep. And George Washington's pushing them to send information. And he's really pushing, I think, in fact, the boundaries of confidentiality and, and saying, you know, don't go too far, but do tell me what's happening in Philadelphia and what's happening inside the administration because the newspapers do not satisfy my need to know. What do you think, maybe we'll play with that a little bit. I mean, does he, does he see himself as kind of a, um, almost as a member of a shadow cabinet in a sense? That it, because he he does have such deep investment in the republic's success, and you know he labored long to see that republic live, does he feel like? Uh, I think as you're suggesting that he he feels like he has to play a uh, a role there. He has to at least have maybe a modest 
touch on the lever so that he can hopefully steer Adams in the right direction and ultimately the country in the right direction? I don't think he himself thinks that. I think other people think that about him. They realize (laughs) that his name still has power. He himself is determined to be a private citizen. And Mm -hmm. one of the duties, as he sees it, of a private citizen is to support the course of the government. Um, And he says that, but he wants to know what the government is doing. And he's particularly interested in this one issue, which is John Adams has sent envoys to France uh, to try to negotiate some settlement to the fact that the French have been seizing American ships at sea. And no one hears from these envoys for a long time. And George Washington is really desperate to know why, what's happening to them. At one point, he even proposes that they be guillotined. Um, mm-hmm. And you can see he just doesn't like being in suspense. And of course, when the answer comes, it's going to upend his retirement. Oh, sure. And, and you know, we're, we're talking about the era of the, the quasi-war with France, um, when the revolution in France has turned particularly violent, um, uh, you know, especially in 1793, when it you know, really goes to hell with the execution of the king and, and the reign of terror begins and whatnot. Um, and then, you know, which occur, under, you know, occurs under his watch, but then, as we all know, um, there is no end to the French Revolution or what becomes the Napoleonic Wars for several decades at that point. So he's really fascinated by those events. I mean, and I mean, I guess it also speaks to the, the question of, you know, what's he worried about for the fate of the Republic in that international geopolitical context? You know, what what are Americans worried about? And, you know, what's going through Adam's mind as he's trying to you know, be his own president, and he's very particular in his correspondence that he is the man in charge, And but he's also very much aware that Washington is watching over his shoulders. Um, you know, what are the, what is he worried about, and what, you know, what are the potential dangers threatening the Republic in this violent period? Right, and I think if you go back to the French Revolution, and at this point, France was being governed by, some, by a three-man executive body called the Directory. Um, but the reign of terror is particularly interesting, especially what you mentioned, which I'm glad you brought up about what happened uh, to Louis the Sixteenth. Um, he had gone to the guillotine, um, and that, I think that's an important context for George Washington's entire retirement, because in some sense, um, that is the backdrop for the significance of that moment on March Fourth, 1797, when power peacefully transfers from George Washington to John Adams. It's a vivid contrast with what's happened in France. And we have some idea of what George Washington thought about those scenes um, because we have accounts of, from conveniently from Thomas Jefferson of seeing George Washington's reaction upon receiving news about, for example, about the king being apprehended and things like that. Um, and George Washington was upset and shocked. Um, and there was one moment, in fact, when a sort of a satire in Philadelphia printed the idea of George Washington going to the guillotine the same way Louis XVI had. And George Washington was infuriated by this. Um, And so I I think it also gives you some historical appreciation also for just how novel what George Washington was attempting to do. It's difficult for us in the 21st century, I think, to appreciate just how novel the idea of a former president was. But if you think back about the idea that Back then, if heads of state left power, they traditionally lost their head. Mm-hmm. That gives you appreciation for just how incredible what George Washington was doing. And I think it also gives you an idea why his retirement might have slightly gone off track, because there really was no good precedent for what he was trying to do. He was the first person to be a former president. 
And the fact that the term sounds so ordinary to us is a credit to him. Well, you know, I actually had never thought about it that way before because we often talk about Washington setting precedents as president. You know, um, you know, is he supposed to shake hands or keep his hands behind his back during levies? You know, um, is is he supposed to literally go to the Senate to seek their advice and consent? But you know, establishing a precedent as a former president is in some ways uh, as challenging, if not more so, than being the actual president itself. Absolutely. And I think in some pretty important ways, if we're honest, uh, and as I said, I think you have to appreciate that George Washington didn't have a good precedent. Um, but in some important ways, the George Washington's post-presidency diverges from the way we think former presidents should largely act today. Um, just to give you an example, we, we largely think that former presidents should avoid meddling in the affairs of their successors. That's mm-hmm. the way most pres- former presidents today define their job. Um, and they'll often even cite George Washington as the example for that. But if you had asked John Adams, <laughs> he would have told you that George Washington had majorly meddled in his administration. <laughs> of course, a lot of that is John Adams' own fault because he was the one who called George Washington out of retirement. And we'll get to that in short. Yeah. Um, but there's another way in which George Washington's post-presidency, I think, diverges from the way we think former presidents should act today. And that's, we tend to think today that becoming a former president in some way lifts you above partisan struggles. It puts you above or petty bickering in some sense. But if we're going to be honest, George Washington became more partisan, I think, when he left the presidency than he even was during the presidency. And that sounds surprising because you remember his farewell address, of course, warned us against spirit of political parties. Mm-hmm. But we tend to forget that George Washington wrote a letter during the last few months of his life where he essentially said that everyone had a choice between being a member of one party or the other. And he really was a federalist. Um, he involved himself in congressional electioneering in a way that he never would have as president. And he supported the infamous Alien and Sedition Acts, which led to printers and publishers uh, who were associated with the emerging opposition party actually being put in prison. Well, I think that's an important point, too, because, as you say, most of the story is you know, Washington is uh, attempting to be, a, a, in a sense, a patriot king, you know, standing above party, ruling above faction. Um, but, you know, under his watch, there is the emergence of, of what he feared the most was political division or political parties in the United States. But, I, and I correct me if I'm wrong, does he ever actually self-identify the, the word by using the word federalist? I know, you know I was reading in the book, he does say that we ought to elect men of capital federal character, by which he means federalist. But does he himself actually use that label to describe his own political sensibilities? Well, there's a line in this letter that I was referencing where he essentially is being begged, and we're skipping ahead now as we get into um, the final month, final year of his life. He's basically, it's become clear that John Adams will probably lose the presidency Mm -hmm. in the election of 1800. And there's a sense that Thomas Jefferson who is the leader of the opposition Republican Party, is going to become president. And some very influential people in his contact with um, members of John Adams' cabinet will basically ask George Washington to come out of retirement again and to stand for an elect- for election as president in the election of 1800. And Washington, of course, tries to silence all talk of this idea. <laughs> um, and one of the arguments he puts up against it is that he himself, could command no more votes than any other federal character for the presidency of the United States. Yeah. Um, and he said, and so I think that is in a way identifying as a federalist. And just to finish the story, he also says 
that the Republicans could nominate a broomstick and a broomstick would command all their votes. And so here you have the father of our country during the final months of his life pondering the possibility that if he did agree to this stand for this third term, that he might lose the election to a broomstick, right. which is actually really quite sad. <laughs> yeah, that, that would not be the way you wanted to go out, certainly. Uh, but it, no. it, it does sort of speak to his own self-awareness that he has lost support amongst many elements of the country. Uh, and certainly, you know, he, he experiences this when he's reading the newspapers and Benjamin Franklin Bache is just, you know, lambasting him and then throwing in a nice little nugget of, uh, uh, of uh, gratitude for Washington's service. But, you know, all of it saying, it's, it's time to go, buddy. Just, just leave. Um, you know, and that was kind of the end of, of his life there, but, but let's move, move back to the, not to the beginning because, um, we don't want to go back to 1732, but let's, let's talk about a, a little bit of the context again, after he leaves the presidency for him personally, because we talked about the geopolitical context of France is at war with all of Europe and the United States is potentially going to be dragged into that war. How is that affecting his personal relationships? Uh, here is a, a man who was a great friend of the French during the American revolution. He's watching what happens, uh, to France, tear itself apart uh, during his first term and into his second term as president. But how is that shaping the people who he has connections with over there? You know, how is that how is that affecting him personally? Well, that's a fabulous question because it has a really, really deep impact on George Washington. Um, I, I think Washington's closest friend, Lafayette. Um, your listeners probably know that Lafayette at some point flees France during the revolution. Um, because he runs the battle, the more radical elements of the revolution. But the counter-revolutionary forces in Prussia and Austria like Lafayette just as little, and they imprison him. And when George Washington is, during the last years of his second term, he ends up with Lafayette's oldest son um, living at the president's house with him. And you, most of your listeners probably imagine George Washington just simply opened up his house immediately and mm-hmm. welcomed the son of Lafayette, but that's not really what happened at all. George Washington made Lafayette's son wait, and he was worried that if he had too much contact with him as president of the United States, in his official capacity, that it would serve as an insult to France and perhaps engage the United States in difficulties with France because of who uh, Lafayette's father was and the boy was really hurt. And to, just to add even more complications to the story, the boy's name is George Washington Lafayette. <laughs> he's named after George Washington. He's always been told that he would find a surrogate father in the United States if he ever came there. And it doesn't exactly turn out that way. But by the end of his presidency, Lafayette's son is living with George Washington. He rides home to Mount Vernon with George Washington. And eventually, he will decide to return to Europe when he receives news that his father has been released. Um, and his father, Lafayette, wants to come to America amid all these difficulties with the United States and France. And this, is, again, is another place where the story gets sad, which is that George Washington really does not want Lafayette to come to the United States. Um, he worries, I think, that Lafayette might embarrass him. Lafayette has an idea that he can help mend the dispute between France and the United States, which George Washington thinks is false. Um, and Lafayette also believes that he can bridge the divide between America's emerging parties, which George Washington also thinks is ignorant um, and idealistic. And he basically tells Lafayette in the last letter 
Committee ever since. It was a long letter explaining the political conditions in the United States at the moment in this dispute with France and said, much as I would like to see you right now, I can't say I can't say it actually pleased me to receive you at Mount Vernon under these circumstances. And that is the last letter that George Washington ever sent to Lafayette, which again is a sad way to think about what really was Well, that's a great point because he really looked on him as an adoptive son in a lot of ways. Yeah. And then certainly yeah, certainly Lafayette's son as well. But, but I think it, it does get to the, the idea that there is more at stake in a revolution than simply changing borders and changing governments. It, you know, These things tear personal friendships apart, families apart, um, and you know, as much as they did in the American Revolution, tore American families apart. But here you're tearing apart transatlantic alliances that were built on mutual trust and admiration um, in ways that they had simply not anticipated. Yeah, and that's a good point. And it also goes some distance to explain it. a lot of Americans felt a very strong attachment to France. It's important to add that France had been right. a very important ally during the American Revolution. And a lot of Americans feel that America should support France during its revolution. It's not an unnatural view, but it's not a view that necessarily Washington takes himself. Um, and as we said, France is seizing American ships at sea, and one of the reasons they're doing it really is that they need food, and they need money to support their wars in Europe. Um, and America's sort of a little part in this huge consequential event happening in Europe. Um, and uh, when it turns out that the envoys that John Adams has sent to France uh, basically, news comes back to America eventually that France will not even receive the envoys unless they agree to pay a bribe. Right, and this sets up a massive scandal in the United States. And the United States in 1798 will begin preparing for war, and as part of those war preparations, John Adams will nominate George Washington to serve as Commander in Chief of the Armies of the United States. And I should say he does that without bothering to ask whether George Washington has any conditions for acceptance. And that is going to turn out to be a major mistake. Yeah, it's like uh, that moment back in the Constitutional Convention period where Washington gets nominated and he really doesn't want to go. But uh, I think, what was it was it George Mason and a couple other folks just forwarded his name anyway and, and didn't tell him they were doing that. It seems like um, they all want to use the power of Washington's name, but they don't really want to check in with him first to see if that's okay. <laughs> Well, so you know, what's what's Adams's logic of for nominating Washington to this command? I mean, we can talk about Washington's reaction in a moment, but why? Uh, you know, what is his interest in in doing so? Why does he think that he needs to nominate Washington as opposed to um, a, a younger uh, military commander who has more experience in the whatever small modern army the United States has been able to muster at that point? That's a great question, and as, as there is actually such a figure of a younger a younger military commander who makes himself available, as John Adams will tell the story, that uh, over and over again, people will suggest to him, why not Alexander Hamilton for commander-in-chief of this army? And as Adams explains, essentially, um, he worries, he does not trust Hamilton with command of this army, and he's almost irritated by the pleas on behalf of Hamilton. Yeah. Um, but there's something else, of course. Um, and, and it's important to say, by the way, that John Adams never really thinks the army is all that important to this equation. He thinks if there is fighting with France, it will be a naval war, uh, which mm. turns out to be accurate. 
Um, and the most important part of this is the Navy. So I think that's very important. So Adams is skeptical somewhat of the importance of an army at the beginning. But if there is going to be an army, then he feels that the name George Washington has more power to it. And that's a very common view, of course, and you can imagine why he's the most famous American and he led the army during the American Revolution. You know, he would, he would put himself at the head of the army that, that crushed the Whiskey Rebellion. And, you know, he has a powerful image, a powerful name, a uniting force, even if he's not as uniting as he once was. Um, and so Adams nominates George Washington for commander-in-chief of the armies of the United States. And he also gives him, he gets that title, commander-in-chief. Mm. And Adams also doesn't pause to bond ponder why the Constitution specifically gives that title to the President of the United States. Some people actually raised that question at the time. Can you, can you appoint someone else to be Commander-in-Chief of the Army of the United States? Um, but it happened. Um, and, and, and George Washington does have some idea that this might happen. He's surprised by the way it does happen with no communication as to his conditions. Because he had actually written conditions to Adams and Adams will make his decision before he gets that letter saying what the conditions are. And one of the conditions is that Washington does not want to take active command of the army unless there's an actual invasion by France. And he wants to choose the second in command who will serve as the essentially the commander in his absence. Um, and why does he feel so strongly about that? Well, I think he wants to, first of all, make sure this army in no way tarnishes his legacy. He's very concerned about his legacy. Um, and he has also some other concerns about coming out of retirement. Of course, he's worried that people will accuse him of being discontent or not being happy in retirement, that the farewell address that he issued at the end of his presidency was a sham. Um, mm-hmm. But in the end, he realizes that he feels like he can't sit on the sidelines if everything he spent his life doing is threatened. So, of course, he's going to accept the command if he's told his service is indispensable. But he's going to set some conditions. And one of those conditions is he wants to take his second command. Well, the relationship certainly between uh, Washington and Adams in this period is particularly fascinating because they, they're trying to, I guess, find the appropriate boundaries between the new actual constitutionally uh, named commander-in-chief and then the commander-in-chief of this army. You know, they're, it seems like they're, they're not even sort of directly communicating. It's more through intermediaries like James McHenry uh, who are bearing the messages right. and also bearing the wrath of both men. Um, but then, you know, Adams, is, uh, as he's wont to do, is really struggling with uh, w- figuring out who's actually in charge here. You know, <laughs> he wants to be, of course, and he, he is. But um, he, again, he's, you know, if, uh, he seems like he's really dealing with the shadow of Washington and trying to figure out what his role is in all this as well. That, that's right. And the issue comes to a head when George Washington, it's actually not his first instinct to do this, but he eventually comes around to the idea that the person he wants as second command is Alexander Hamilton. Even though George Washington, we should say he has been specifically told that John Adams does not want Alexander Hamilton in his role. <laughs> Washington had already received a letter telling him that. And he proceeds to say Hamilton is going to be his second command and McHenry informs McHenry is the Secretary of War, who, by the way, I think everyone seems to agree is a nice guy, but not qualified for the job. Yeah. Um, and he basically tells Adams that these are the men without whom he thinks George Washington will not serve. And George Washington has directly suggested that language. Um, 
But John Adams really does not want Alexander Hamilton. That's going to set off this this period of confusing sort of infighting of, of, of who gets to make this decision. Adams is intent that the president gets to make this decision. But at the same time, he can't publicly afford falling out with George Washington, who ultimately threatens to essentially resign from the army if he doesn't get his way. So ultimately, Adams is going to have to give way and let George Washington have the general officers that George Washington wants to have. Yeah, that wouldn't look good for, uh, I guess you would say, the optics. or The optics would not look good if, if uh, Washington decided to resign uh, his commission. No, it would it definitely would not look good. I mean, I think everyone was aware of the optics of the situation were funny. George Washington had begun labeling his letters, read, you know, read and then burn. Um, he didn't want some of these letters making it into history. And they did make it into history because people didn't always listen to his instructions mm-hmm. and burn the correspondence as he asked. Well, and, you know, it's, it's always interesting, the relationship between Washington and Hamilton, because he does have a great deal of confidence in the young man. But but Adams, you know, he sees this guy as somebody who dreams of empire, as he said. You know, why don't we just launch an invasion of Spanish Florida and, you know, carry the revolution on down into South America and, you know, take what he sees as uh, uh, should be rightfully joined to the Union. Um, it seems like, you know, uh, Washington, I don't know, what is your take? I mean, it seems like Washington is always sort of... Uh, willing to indulge Hamilton and sort of pat him on the head, but then seems like he, he can be a one who can sort of temper his enthusiasm if anybody can. Right. And I, I think George Washington was, I mean, Hamilton, Hamilton's writing sort of period. You have to be careful. You don't want to overstate what Hamilton was planning to do. But mm-hmm. He does mention even ideas as far as actually going to South America uh, because he thinks the Spanish, the goals of the Spanish colonies in South America is, are fueling France's wars. Um, so there's a there's even talk of some sort of expedition there, and of course he says naturally the command would fall to me to lead such a thing. And um, um, and Adams really does feel that um, Hamilton has the makings of a Caesar figure. Uh, he thinks he is a threat to the republic. Um, now, why does Washington want Hamilton as second command? Well, at first I think he wanted someone else. He thought maybe Charles Cotesworth Pickney might be the right choice for second command. But he's told in, in letters that he receives that the Federalists, and even in some cases not Federalists, are, have been, are all agree that Hamilton would be the best choice. And this sort of appeals to Washington because um, he's very comfortable with mm-hmm. Hamilton. And Hamilton had never served as a general officer during the American Revolution. And Washington recognized that might be problematic, that there might be general officers who would be unwilling to serve under someone who had never uh, surpassed a colonelcy during the American Revolution. Um, but he also thinks that Hamilton had been at his side. He had been helping draft his correspondence, and he had seen the American Revolution from a lens that few others had, by somehow, basically by inhabiting the role of ghostwriter to the commander-in-chief. Mm-hmm. He had been allowed to see the whole operation of the war, um, the whole larger picture, which might have eluded generals who had, who had smaller with smaller roles. And so he thinks that no one essentially would be so ready to step into command as Alexander Hamilton. And of course, quite a bit had happened in the intervening years between the American Revolution and this moment. Hamilton had served as Treasury Secretary. Um, and, you know, I think Washington knew he wasn't always the most unifying figure. He had made that clear during his own presidency. He acknowledged that he had, um, that, that he was a partisan figure. 
At the same time, he trusted him and he thought he would be the best person, most capable person to be able to step into his shoes if necessary. And that was a very likely outcome because Washington, it occurred to Washington, he could get sick, mm-hmm. he was older, and he also didn't want to take active command unless there was an actual invasion. Yeah. And we should say Washington always thought this actual invasion idea was a, quite a remote possibility. He didn't think that the French could actually pull it off. Well, right. And, and as you said earlier, you know, Adams is primarily thinking that this is going to be a naval conflict, which it turned out to be, and that you know, the land armies stay in Europe. Well, I mean, in, in Washington's advocacy for Hamilton, that basically destroys his relationship with Henry Knox, um, you know, who had been a major general in the American Revolution and, and who outranked all of these guys and who thought, well, if anyone's going to be second in command, it should be me by virtue of, of rank. Um, but that's not the way it turned out. That's true. And it's, again, another example of a really close relationship that Washington had that was somewhat destroyed um, by these last, these, this, 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 this incident during the last years of his life. Um, he essentially tells Knox, if you're, you know, everyone needs to do their duty. No one more so, you know, no one wanted to stay in retirement more than I did. I need your help here. I need you to come out too and become the third major general in his army. But, um, Knox is not willing to be the third-ranking major general of his army. Uh, he will not serve behind Alexander Hamilton. And that, I believe that was the last communication they had, right, was over that that particular dispute. That was that, it. that is correct. Yeah, that, those were the last letters that passed back and forth between Washington and Knox. Mm-hmm. Well, and as Washington is wrestling with the idea of coming back onto the public stage and of trying to resist the his natural impulse to participate when his other side of him wants to simply stay at Mount Vernon and uh, properly retire. One of the things he's also wrestling with is uh, his feelings and thoughts about the enslaved community at Mount Vernon and slavery in the United States in general. Uh, This is still a moment before the 1830s, of course, when there seems like there might be some kind of general emancipation, especially in Virginia, at least people are talking about it and hoping that that is the case. Um, Washington recognizes that he is deeply entwined with slavery and wants to extricate himself from that. And uh, people have written a, a lot about that lately, you know, especially my colleague here at Mount Vernon, Mary Thompson, uh, on her book, The Only Unavoidable Subject of Regret. And I was wondering, you know, as, you're, as you were writing this book and focusing on this very particular moment of Washington's life in his last couple of years, you know, what was your read on his struggle? What What is he thinking about uh, in terms of, of slavery and, and, and how he might actually contribute uh, uh, to eradicating slavery in the Republic and, and providing some means of, um, uh, of emancipating his own enslaved people? That's a great question and obviously a really big question. Um, and... Um, during the last years of Washington's presidency, um, he was playing around with an idea to, to, that involved renting out some of Mount Vernon's farms. And as part of that plan, there was an element that would lead, he hoped, in some way to, to freeing himself or extricating himself, as it were. It's a weird word, of course, to use when mm-hmm. you are the person who owns slaves. Um, but that's the way he did think about it. Um, that would allow him to sort of break this cycle of dependence that he saw between himself and the enslaved community at Mount Vernon. But the plan doesn't work out. He's not really ever able to make it work. 
for a variety of reasons. Um, and one reason is that um, a plurality of non-foreign slaves are not really his. They are, they're not his at all. They're not, they belong to the estate of his wife's uh, first husband. And it's not in his power to emancipate those slaves. And it's not even in Martha's power to emancipate those slaves. So it's not clear that she herself would have favored doing so, even if it was in her power. Um, so that's a major complication um, in terms of Washington's own thinking about what to do at Mount Vernon. Now, there are some other complications, too, even as he's writing his will. Um, and the will, of course, is a very famous document. It provides for eventual freedom for the slaves that um, he himself owned. Um, but it acknowledges that there are going to be painful consequences because the marriages that his slaves had formed with the slaves belonging to the estate of his wife's first husband um, um, will be broken up mm -hmm. as a result. And he puts this in his will. I think it's a sign that the word painful because um, he, I think he had hoped to find a way to, to that Mount Vernon would not pass into history half slave and half free. But that is exactly what did end up happening. In some way, it's the same fate as our entire country, which eventually will become half slave and half free. Um, and, you know, as you said, George Washington did genuinely hope that the state of Virginia would find some route to legislative emancipation. He didn't do anything himself necessarily to bring that outcome about, but he hoped it would happen. And he thought it would naturally happen because he believed, and this sounds strange to us today, knowing where we, what we did about what happened during the Civil War, um, but he believed that Virginia's true interest lay more with states like Pennsylvania mm -hmm. than it lay with the Carolina. Um, and he thought eventually economics dictated that Virginia would move away from slavery. And one of the reasons was, for example, he felt that slavery no longer made sense fit into his own business plans at Mount Vernon ever since he had switched from tobacco to wheat. Um, and he would say during his last years that he believed he had twice as many slaves as he could profitably employ at Mount Vernon. And so there's another strange contradiction, because even as he's writing his will, which is going to provide eventual emancipation for his slaves, he's looking for new ways to keep his the Mount Vernon slave community busy. Mm -hmm. uh, he wants to keep them working, and he's looking for ways still to apprehend slaves who have run away. Um, so it's, this is a complicated story, um, and I think it's one that Washington himself would admit um, was disappointing in some sense in the end, and you can see that that legacy in the will where he writes painful. Do you think it's the case that if he was advocating for legislative emancipation, you know, done by the state authorities, so that there would be a, you know, a sovereign power that would make the decision, I guess, in a sense, easier for people like him who are wrestling with this tension between self-interest and a, a desire to, uh, in his evolving views, do what he thought was probably the right thing to do? Well, I, I think advocating might be a little bit too strong of a word. I don't. I don't yeah. he, he says he supports it, but I doesn't. I wouldn't say he's advocating for it. He's not putting himself out there to that extent. And by the for way, sure. I don't think it's clear that had he put himself out there, it would have made any difference. I think he probably would have been ignored. Um, you know, there is there. He was, it's important to say during these last years, he was quite estranged from the state of Virginia. His power in Virginia was no longer what it once was, and he himself will say that over and over again. He said. He has not interacted with the community outside of Alexandria and Mount Vernon very much. And really, I think the power in Virginia has passed from Mount Vernon to Monticello. Um, sure. It is the Republicans who have power in Mount Vernon. So I think we can overstate, you know, some people say, why didn't he do more? 
he believed in legislative emancipation, why didn't he speak up more? Well, the truth is, I think probably political circumstances of the time suggest it would have made no difference. Um, and he understood that quite well. He was quite a savvy, quite a savvy political year, um, and he understood that he was no longer in control. When I, I think that's an important point, and especially as he's watching, you know, he's well aware that Jefferson has a preponderance of influence over over the politics of the state at that point. But then, especially, you know, once he sees his his, uh, I guess, I maybe mean, arch enemy is too strong of a word, but he he really dislikes James Monroe, and especially when he becomes he becomes governor. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think there's no one in public life who Washington like less than James <laughs> Monroe, perhaps. Yeah. Even even at one point is, is marking up a, a, essentially a, a tell-all book that James Monroe had written attacking George Washington's foreign policy. And he sort of mocks the idea that James Monroe could ever become president of the United States. And of course, it sounds very funny when you read it in hindsight because we know James Monroe did become yeah. president of the United States. And of course, welcome Lafayette to the country too. <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. It was at like 1824, I think, when Lafayette came back. You know, as we're kind of uh, nearing the end of our time today, I did want to actually ask you about your writing process. Uh, and you had mentioned uh, very briefly at the beginning that you were a speechwriter uh, in a presidential administration, and that actually sort of shaped uh, the ways you approached your thoughts about uh, this book. I've talked to other folks uh, who have written uh, biographies about revolutionary figures who also served as, as speech writers. And so I'm curious to hear your take. That's a great question. I think um, one of the jobs of a speech writer is that you are, your job essentially is to help explain a decision that the president made. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a decision. You have to sort of get inside the president's head and understand the thought process. And I think presidential speeches are most effective when you take the American people through your thinking and explain how you came to the conclusion, whereas if you just sort of state what you're going to do, and you don't bring the people along, the speech tends to fail. And I think maybe we've seen some of that recently. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in some sense, being a biographer is a little similar. I think you're trying to go back and understand decisions that were made long ago and to understand the information that people we're dealing with when they made those decisions. And I think that's a really important point, which is when we look back, um, so much of this period especially can sound ridiculous because we know that France did not launch a land invasion of the United States. Mm-hmm. We know that the conflict between Federalists and Republicans did not annihilate the country. We know that the partisan newspapers that Washington hated so much and that were publishing what was then considered fake news did not take down the Republic. But yet these were all real concerns that Americans had at the time. And I think you can't understand the decisions that people back then made unless you understand what information they were making those decisions with. Um, so I made a decision um, when I was writing this book, and that decision was I would provide the reader with only the information that was then available to the people mm. I was writing about. And I would only introduce new information um, as it became known to people I was writing about. And that, that approach was pioneered by a Washington biographer named Douglas Southall Freeman, mm. who, um, who famously wrote a biography of Robert E. Lee, and then he wrote a biography of George Washington, which was six volumes, and actually only got to the beginning of George Washington's uh, second term. <laughs> um, and so that was the decision I made. And the question, of course, is whose eyes should you tell the story from? Is it just, is it just George Washington's eyes? Mm-hmm. And I decided that was no longer enough at this point in the story because Washington's eyesight was failing in some sort of figurative way and he could no longer see himself clearly. And he had to bring in 
different viewpoints, the viewpoints of other people who made up the Mount Vernon community, the viewpoints of its political allies, and yes, the viewpoint of its political adversaries, people like Jefferson mm. and James Monroe. Um, I think those were important viewpoints to include because in some sense, what is happening here during these last years is the name Washington is transitioning from a figure of uh, had held this country together to a city that was somehow going to have to hold all these competing forces together. And of course, today there's some irony in the fact that when you hear the word Washington, your first thought is of that city where everyone disagrees on everything. <laughs> exactly. As you're telling the story through people's eyes, you know, obviously you're using the, the papers of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Hamilton, you know, the published available material through either the you know, UVA Press or Princeton or whatnot, or more importantly these days, Founders Online, which is a remarkable resource. Um, is there anything else that you were looking at that you, you may have found in, you know, archival repositories or libraries or, you know, perhaps even, you know, the, the Fred W. Smith Library uh, at Mount Vernon that surprised you and that helped you add to the story in ways that you did not expect to? Yeah, I think uh, that, that's a really good point. And, and the Fred W. Smith National Library for the study of George Washington, in some sense, the library that George Washington had hoped to build mm-hmm. during his post-presidency but never did, was a very valuable part of my research. Um, and you get really, you can get into the thoughts of his family members very well from the collections available there and also see the letters that were sent um, uh, to the family when George Washington died, um, which are very valuable too. And um, one of the interesting things, for example, and I think this is a letter I, I found at, at, um, at, at the Fred W. Smith National Library was, for example, mm-hmm. learning that uh, Nellie Custis mm-hmm. uh, would have supported Charles Coatsworth Pickney in the election of 1800, not uh, John Adams, which is sort of an interesting view. It sort of gives you a sense of which way Mount Vernon was leaning, and that was sort of a division within the Federalist um, ranks. And just also getting a sense of how how much um, the uh, family at Mount Vernon after George Washington's death um, really did not want a Republican to um, become president of the United States and how worried they were about what would happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, John, this has been great, but before I let you go, I do want to ask you um, what you've got coming down the pike. Uh, are you working on a new project or are you still uh, um, working on uh, the press tour for Washington's End? Well, a little bit of both. I'm also de- dealing with a... Uh, with a uh, two-month-old who's keeping me quite busy changing diapers. So. <laughs> that is a so, new project, you know, indeed. Historians like to keep their eyes on the past, but I also have my eyes on America's future and the, on, the, on the two-month-old. So, uh, so yeah, I'm, 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 I'm thinking about maybe returning to the 19th century for the next book, but I'm still still figuring it out and trying to uh, you know get enough focus to be able to come up with a better answer to that great question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, no, I think that's absolutely the right one, and I, I certainly commiserate um, with you because uh, I was there uh, just a few years ago myself, and and I, I will say congratulations on on uh, on both projects that have come to fruition recently. And uh, Jonathan, thanks so much for your time today, and we look forward to seeing you again, uh, hopefully back at Mount Vernon sometime soon. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky. Our music was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hildebrand. If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research into George Washington and his world, you may do so by making a contribution to Mount Vernon. 
More information is on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org slash podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.